Welcome, welcome to the Beowulf launch party. I am excited to take part today in uh, celebrating the the release of Tolkien's Beowulf. Uh, this has been a day I've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been so excited about the stuff that uh, Christopher Tolkien has been releasing recently. Uh, neither the Beowulf nor the Fall of Arthur are things that I was necessarily assuming were ever going to actually happen. So I am so delighted uh, that they have both been released. And the the uh, the Beowulf in particular kind of caught me by surprise uh, that they were releasing it. That was uh, that was that was very great and exciting news. So I'm glad to uh, to be here today uh, in uh, celebrating with the Middle Earth Network and the Tolkien Society over uh, over in England. And uh, you know we're getting together today to to talk about Beowulf to discuss a little bit about this book, the significance of this book and, and, uh, and, and, you know, why we're so excited about it. And that's what I wanted to focus on, uh, this morning. I wanted to talk about why we should be excited. And here I'm thinking in particular of sort of the average Tolkien fan. I know that a lot of Tolkien fans, uh, are either are interested independently, uh, in, many of the sort of medieval and Norse stuff that Tolkien was, or have become so through reading Tolkien. Um, and among Tolkien fans, there seems to be a general recognition of the fact that, you know, Tolkien was a great Anglo-Saxon scholar, he was a great medievalist, and there's at least sort of a recognition of the significance and the importance of Beowulf and of, uh, you know, other Middle English poems like Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, for instance, and, uh, and of, uh, you know, the Norse tradition that Tolkien loves so much and the Kalevala, you know, the Finnish Kalevala and other things, you know, among many Tolkien fans, there's sort of a general recognition that these things are important. But I know that there are a lot of Tolkien fans out there who, while they kind of recognize that, don't necessarily independently share that enthusiasm. That is to say, they might recognize, okay, yes, I know that Beowulf was really important to Tolkien, but being a Tolkien fan and, you know, being a fan of the Lord of the Rings and recognizing that Beowulf was very important to Tolkien is not the same thing as, in fact, being excited about Beowulf oneself, right? Um, and I think that there are my guess is that there are lots of fans out there who here have sort of two consecutive reactions uh, to the release of Tolkien's Beowulf. One is to say, wow, hey, a new Tolkien book. That's awesome. Something new by Tolkien. I'm very excited. And then to read more about what's actually in it. And it's like, okay, so it's a prose translation of Beowulf plus... Uh, you know, more than a hundred pages of commentary on Beowulf. And I suspect that the excitement of many casual Tolkien fans sort of decrease at this point and be like, well, okay, I mean, I'm interested in new Tolkien things, but um, uh, this is, I'm not that enthusiastic about Beowulf. So my that those are the people that I want to address today. If you are if you are excited about Beowulf and excited to read Tolkien's commentary on Beowulf, then I don't need to tell you why you should be excited about this book. But if you are a casual Tolkien fan and you are not really sure, you know, you don't really um have a clear any kind of clear sense of of, you know, why it's going to really be worth your time to read lots of commentary on an Anglo-Saxon poem that you maybe read in school and maybe didn't like in school. I don't know. I know that there are a lot of people in that situation. Um, so why should you care? Um, this is... Um, First, one thing I want to talk about before I get... I've got three reasons why I think that you should care about Tolkien's Beowulf. Um, but even before I get to those, uh, I wanted to, to say a few general things about the relationship between Tolkien's scholarship and his fiction and his writing. Um, and I think that this is something that is not really perfectly understood um, by a lot of casual fans. Um, let me add, by the way, uh, uh, a, a note of welcome for those of you who have joined me live here. If you've got questions, um, you know, if there are things that you would like to talk about or you have specific questions and things, please do feel free to type those in uh, and I'll try, I'll, you know, come back and get to those. Um, I promise. Uh, so anyway, as I said, I want to talk uh, first a little bit about the relationship between Tolkien's scholarship and his writing. 
again, uh, there's a general recognition among Tolkien fans, I think, that, um, you know, he was a scholar and his scholarship was very important to him. And many people are aware of the fact that there are particular moments, you know, sort of, uh, if you sort of push to, 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 to look at particular parallels and things between some of the medieval works that Tolkien loved and, uh, and the Lord of the Rings, you can find them, of course, you know, whether you look for specific details, as for instance, uh, most Tolkien fans who read Beowulf for the first time in high school or college will notice the uh, diminutive thief who sneaks into the dragon's horde and steals the golden cup and therefore enrages the dragon who comes out and burns down a town. Um, you know, that, that, that's sort of a scene that jumps out at people often when they read Beowulf for the first time and they know The Hobbit. Um, so, of course, there exist... Uh, uh, moments like that where we can see Tolkien borrowing directly from, uh, you know, from, from Beowulf. And so it's easy to kind of point to things like that and say, ah, see, yes, this is, uh, we can see how, how Tolkien was borrowing from Beowulf. But there's more to it than that. Um, of course, we then sort of go up to the next level of that and say, well, look at, for instance, the depiction of the Rohirrim, right? Uh, and, you know, you've got the, the culture and the language of the people of Rohan. And if you read Beowulf carefully, and especially if you, if you study any more of Anglo-Saxon uh, poetry and literature and culture outside of Beowulf, you will quickly see uh, the ways in which Tolkien is sort of rendering that culture and rendering the, the you know, that, that society, though he officially denied this. And I'll come back to that in a second. Um, in the in the culture of the Rohirrim, and that's obviously you know there are not that many very specific particular parallels that you can point to. There are still some, as for instance, if you look at if you read in the appendix about Helm Hammerhand, you will see that one of the things that is said about him, um, in particular at the end during the Fell Winter near his death, um, how he, how much he is feared. Uh, by the by, the opposing ar armies, and a, a a small legendary snippet is said about him that if he does not bear any weapons, that no weapon can bite on him, um, and that is straight out of Beowulf. That is said of Grendel in Beowulf, actually. So Helm Hammerhand uh, is given one of the properties of Grendel, which is an interesting thing. Um, but anyway, so again, th there are specific links that you can make, and of course, again, if you go beyond Beowulf, you can see, for instance, the fact that the uh, you know the the uh, where is the horse and the rider uh, poem that Aragorn recites before they arrive at Meadowseld for the first time in the Two Towers is is based very directly upon a very famous passage from one of the great Anglo-Saxon poems called The Wanderer. So again, there, there are things like that that you can point to, but you know, if you, if you look at it at all, the influence obviously goes much further than just specific references, specific characters, specific borrowings uh, from this other, from Anglo-Saxon literature. More, there's sort of the the entire spirit. There's there's this clear attempt by Tolkien to embody within his stories, within his fictional world, a representation of this historical world that he studied so much and loved so much. But I think it goes even one step further than that. Um, and this is something that, uh, you know, this is not a theory of my own. Um, my own uh, my own thoughts on this have been primarily informed uh, by the work of great scholars before me, particularly Tom Shippey uh, and Michael Drought. When, if you read in particular Tom Shippey's Road to Middle-Earth, you can see the ways in which, you know, one of the things that Tom Shippey has done such important work in, in, in demonstrating and pointing out to us are the ways in which Tolkien is embodying his scholarship within his fiction. That there seems to be, seems to have been for Tolkien very little boundary between the intellectual work that he did, uh, you know, in his, in his official professorial life, uh, and the creative work that he was doing uh, at home, the creative work that he was doing on The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and other things. Um, when The Lord of the Rings was published in the 50s, uh, you know, uh, Humphrey Carpenter, uh, the uh, uh, Tolkien's biographer, points to uh, some kind of bemused reactions by, um, by Tolkien's colleagues at Oxford, right? Um, not just because their, you know, esteemed colleague had just published this 
weird, enormous fantasy work with elves and hobbits and, and, and dwarves and all that kind of thing, um, which they didn't quite know what to make of. But even more because of how huge the Lord of the Rings is. That is, Tolkien's scholarly output, as far as the amount of scholarly material Tolkien actually published officially in his lifetime was relatively small. He published, I mean, uh, you know, his, his work, um, his, his great, uh, you know, article, The Monsters and the Critics, um, you know, is one of the foundation stones of modern Anglo-Saxon scholarship. It was enormously influential, but it's, he didn't publish that much. He never published the great monograph. He never came out with, um, a, uh, uh, you know, the, a, a great definitive work of Germanic philology that people were kind of hoping for from him, that people kind of expected from him, actually. Um, there was the question, you know, there had been kind of lurking in people's minds the question, what is Tolkien doing with himself? Why hasn't he published his book? You know, his great book of scholarship. Um, why haven't we gotten more? From him, we've gotten a few articles, and they're very good articles, incredibly influential articles. But, 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 where's the book? Where's the stuff? Where, where is his scholarly production? And then he comes out with this enormous thousand-page fantasy story, and of course, it's very logical for people to think, oh. Well, that's why we haven't received the great book of scholarship, because here's what he's doing instead. Instead, he's been working on this elf hobbit story um, in lieu of, you know, and it seems, you know, it's it was, I, I think, natural for, you know, his scholarly peers to say, why is he doing this frivolous thing instead of doing substantive scholarship? Well... What I think, and again, you know, uh, based especially on, you know, many of the wonderful arguments that, that Tom Shippey has made, it seems to me relatively clear that The Lord of the Rings is, in a sense, the great scholarly monograph that Tolkien was working on for most of his life. Um, just as, in a sense, the Silmarillion is, in a special way, uh, the great monograph of philology that Tolkien was working on for most of his life. Um, but this is something that was certainly, you know, in some ways I feel like it's something that's been underappreciated by everybody. That is, the scholars didn't really appreciate, you know, they, they didn't read his fiction, his fantasy fiction carefully enough to be able to perceive uh, the, uh, the scholarly meat of it. And most of the fans uh, don't know enough about the scholarship uh, to be able to appreciate that either. Um, but for I, I believe, you know, looking at Tolkien's works and looking at his scholarship, that there was for Tolkien very little boundary. That in fact, one of the things that really set him apart as a scholar was his desire to pursue scholarship in this kind of exploratory fashion. Not content to just sort of sit back and write. Uh, the kind of sort of dry textbook like you know work of scholarship that 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 his colleagues were sort of hoping he was going to do assuming he was going to do instead he kind of lived it kind of breathed life into it he had lots of ideas and lots of theories about anglo-saxon culture about readings of particular passages in anglo-saxon literature about particular textual dilemmas in anglo-saxon literature do you interpret this particular passage this way do we believe that that passage is authentic or not what might have um you know what might have been in this text that has been lost but uh, have been referred to what might be the interrelationships between these different groups of languages, between these different cultures, between these different works of literatures and these literary traditions? How do the sort of the legendary uh, and mythic elements of these stories get combined with the sort of more history and chronicle stuff that we see working in? We see both of those things at work in Beowulf. How are they related to each other? How do they get related to each other over time? All of these kinds of questions are things which were very much Tolkien's focus in his scholarly life. And Tolkien's answers to those questions are in his fiction, that he didn't write a book about it. Rather, he did. It was The Lord of the Rings uh, and a bunch of his other stuff. Um, as I say, for Tolkien, there seemed to be really no boundaries. Instead of saying, um, you know, instead of publishing a, you know, a, a, an article on 
uh, Arthur, what does he do instead? He writes <laughs> the fall of Arthur, begins the fall of Arthur. Um, what does he do uh, instead of, um, you know, instead of writing on, uh, on the relationship between uh you know, Gothic and Anglo-Saxon, he doesn't, he doesn't write a thing on the relationship between Gothic and Anglo-Saxon. Instead, he depicts, uh, the relationship between Gothic and Anglo-Saxon, um, in Appendix A of The Lord of the Rings, in looking at the history of the Rohirrim and how they are related uh, uh, to the to the the people of Northern Rovanian, with all of their conspicuously Gothic names, um, again he embeds this uh, his 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 concept of sort of the answers to these questions and the solutions to these scholarly riddles in his works themselves. It's one of the things that make his works so rich. Um, you know, many people read Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien's fantasy and, and of course are, you know, uh, totally struck by the perception of depth, uh, in his work. Um, this sense that, you know, it's almost like Middle Earth is, is a real place. In my view, this is one of the things, this tendency by Tolkien, not a tendency, that's not a, that's not the right way to say it. Um, uh, this practice of Tolkien, of embodying his scholarly ideas within his fiction, or to say the same thing a different way, using his scholarly analysis of this historical, literary, linguistic uh, material that he spent his life studying, using that as a framework for his stories. And again, these things happened, I believe, completely organically in Tolkien's mind. This seems to be how he thought through these things on the scholarly level. This seems to be where his stories come from on the fictional level. There, there's, there, I don't think there's any dividing line. I don't think you can pull them apart at all uh, in Tolkien's practice, uh, in Tolkien's mind, in the substance of the stories that we get. But, the, but that fact is, I think, one of the things that really invests Middle-earth with that sense of reality, because it is in large part based on reality. It's not, um, it's not something that he's just kind of like a history that he's just making up and trying to make plausible in many places. And in many cases, it's, it's actually based on real history in this way. Um, the kind of symbiosis between, uh, between historical scholar, historically, historical literary and linguistic scholarship, um, of our world, and the fictional history and basis of Middle-earth, those two things are so intimately connected in Tolkien's world um, that the result is this, you know, this really compelling world um, that we have all come to love about Tolkien. So I, that's one thing that I think, that, that concept of the, the thorough interrelationship between Tolkien's scholarly work and Tolkien's fiction is something that is really hard to talk about. It's really hard to point to. For instance, um, sometimes I'll be doing an interview with a journalist. Somebody wants to write a, you know, a, a newspaper article or something like that about Tolkien, and they'll ask me about this. They'll like, could you, you know, describe how Beowulf influenced him? That's such a hard question to answer in the context of like a, you know, like a like a TV or or, or newspaper interview, um, because what the journalists tend to want is sort of like a a, a clear kind of nugget. They love for instance, the Bilbo uh, and uh, uh, Thief of the Golden Cup parallel in Beowulf. That's the kind of concrete thing that they're hoping for, and they want to see more of this. Uh, and uh, But it's really hard to convey um, how these things, these works, influenced Tolkien, because uh, it goes so far beyond um, what people are sort of the way that people tend to be thinking about it. Um, the Lord of the Rings was, in a very real sense, a work of scholarship by Tolkien. Um, and that, so that's one thing that I would encourage um, sort of casual fans to think about. And as a consequence of this, therefore, I think there are many reasons why casual fans should be excited um, about... Uh, about Tolkien's Beowulf. Let me give my three reasons. There are three reasons why I think the average Tolkien fan should be excited about Tolkien's Beowulf. Beowulf. First, it will help us to understand Tolkien's world better. Um, 
as I said, you know, the, these, these scholarly issues, um, these particular, like, you know, dilemmas or, or uncertainties within the text of poems like Beowulf, especially, um, you know, Beowulf was where Tolkien spent more of, he spent more of his career on Beowulf than any other thing. Um, so if you want to, if you want to find something, um, where which really kind of gets at the heart of a lot of these things that Tolkien is thinking through, a lot of these thoughts, which, which then you know are manifested, which he thinks through, uh, in his in his in his stories, um, Beowulf is a great place to start. Let me give one really small, uh, small and and, and sort of random example, um, and uh, I'm gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna read a short passage. This is this is a, a, a short passage from what might be uh, suspected to be sort of the least um, the least inspiring or sort of likely place. I'm going to read you a bit from one of his, from from a part of his commentary on the translation. So you know, in that that long section after the the after Christopher Tolkien gives the prose translation, and then he goes through and does like a. It's not exactly line by line, but he gives he gives commentary um, going all the way through. Here's um, here's commentary on using the phrase "a fiend of hell" to describe uh, to describe Grendel. Um, Found on Hella is the actual Anglo-Saxon term. It's a very literal translation that he uses there. Tolkien says the Old English "found on Hella" is a very curious expression. It implies, of course, that Grendel is a hell fiend, a creature damned irretrievably. It remains, nonetheless, remarkable, for Grendel is not in hell, but very physically in Denmark. And he is not even yet a damned spirit, for he is mortal and has to be slain before he goes to hell. There is evidently a confusion or twilight in the thought of the poet and his age about these monsters, hostile to mankind. They remain physical monsters, with blood, able to be slain with the right sword. Yet already they are described in terms applicable to evil spirits. So here, line 102, ghast. Uh, he's described as if he were a ghost, like the word ghost is used to describe Grendel, even though he's obviously not a ghost. Um, whether Feond, whether Feond on Hela is due to a kind of half-theological notion that one of the accursed things of misshapen human form being damned carried their hell ever with them in their hearts and spirits, or whether it is due to taking over a Christian phrase carelessly, is difficult to decide. Listen to that again. Whether Feond on Hela is due to a kind of half-theological notion that one of the accursed things of misshapen human form, being damned, carried their hell ever with them in their hearts and spirits. He, this is his suggestion, right? So he says that there, there are two reasons why uh, Beowulf, by the why the Beowulf poet might have called Grendel a feound on Hela, a hell fiend, even though it's obviously not literally true. He is a a, a corporeal and a mortal creature. Um, in fact, of basically human stock, he's described as being a descendant of Cain. He's monstrous. Uh, he is he is twisted and perverted in form, but he is still essentially mortal. So he's not a demon. Literally, he's not a ghost, literally. But Tolkien is very interested in the way that the Beowulf poet describes him, the kinds of terms that the Beowulf poet uses to describe him, and the way that he talks about that confusion or twilight in the thought of the poet and his age about these monsters hostile to mankind is really interesting. What did they understand? How did they understand these monsters? What are they saying about these monsters? And his two theor his two concrete suggestions about how we are to interpret this phrase as it applies to Grendel. One is relatively uh, simple, right? One is a, is a fairly mundane explanation. That is the second one, um, whether it is due to taking over a Christian phrase carelessly. Um, feond on Hela is just just equals fiend or devil is difficult to decide. So he says he says you know, it might just be it might just be that you know the poet is 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 using the word hell fiend and he's just kind of tossing it out there and not thinking about it very much. You know that he's 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 heard that term uh, you know in a Christian context 
And he's just, you know, he just tosses it out there concerning Grendel. But it's pretty obvious that that's not the ver it's not the explanation that Tolkien is really interested in, right? The one he's really interested in is the other one, that half theological notion that one of the accursed things of misshapen human form being damned carry their hell ever with them in their hearts and spirits. Now, we think about this. In, 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 in pointing out, you know, passages like that in reading the Beowulf commentary, it's not that we're getting here, like, the secret key, the underlying, the underlying explanation to everything in The Lord of the Rings. Um, but I don't know about you, but I can't help but think of creatures like the Ringwraiths, for instance. Think of the number of monsters in Tolkien's world, um, who are creatures who have, who have had their shapes twisted informed in some ways and or who have this kind of uncertainty are they are they are they aghast are they a spirit are they a fiend are they mortal um think of the witch king of angmar right um is he dead or is he not dead um you know is he dead and damned or does he just bear his damnation with him um he is slain Right. So presumably he still needed to be slain based on what we see uh, from certainly from the progress of Gollum and, and, and Bilbo and what we learn about the rings of power. Presumably the witch king did not, in fact, die, but his life has been drawn out and made into a torment. He is himself damned and is carrying his damnation with him. Um, and we see the way that the ringwraiths become, you know, uh, have sort of taken that. Um, that demonish and uh, uh, and and sort of ghostly or spiritual evil, um, and have in a sense sort of lost their own physicality in it. You know the way that those two things come together um, is really difficult to talk about. I mean, I don't know how many minutes or hours I have spent over the last five years in doing my podcast talking about the ring wraiths and what they're like and trying to answer people's questions. Everybody has questions about the ring wraiths and what are they really like and where do they live and what, what do we actually know about them and what do things look like from their point of view and all these kinds of things. Um, well, I don't know, but you know, when I read his contemplation of Beowulf and thinking about it, you can, you can see him thinking about this question. What exactly is the poet suggesting about him and what does it imply? And then we go back and we look at his description of his own monsters, the nature of his own monsters in his books. And I think that we can see him considering the same question there. Again, it's not that he's basing the ring rates on Grendel or anything. It's, it's, it's nothing like as simplistic as that. It is, uh, it is, you can't draw from this a kind of clear, clean soundbite, um, you know, that, um, that you could give a journalist for a newspaper quote about the influence of, of, you know, Grendel on the ring rates or something like that. But again, what we see is Tolkien chewing over this complicated idea, trying to understand what the poet and what the poet's culture was really, how they envisioned these monsters. And when we see him thinking about that, and then we go to his own books, we can see how he is continuing to think about this stuff uh, in his own works. Even think about the dragons. Think about Glaurung um, and the evil spirit within Glaurung. Right, Glaurung is also a mortal creature of a twisted, of you know, whose body has been shaped and twisted by Morgoth, and yet it also has an evil spirit, right? You know, by the evil spirit that is within him. That's you know one of those phrases in the Silmarillion that always jumps out at people about Glaurung. Who is he? What is he? How does he function? Is he in contact with Morgoth? Is he a free agent? Uh, you know, is is what is it? How how does it work? And again, you know, to me. I like to think about this passage, uh, you know, in uh, the Beowulf commentary and Glaurung and think, you know, I think again, we can see Tolkien contemplating a kind of a similar thing. Um, I am myself a very uh, oral person. I like to listen to things and I like to talk about things. And I have long joked uh, that I that I talk with my mouth. I, I have a hard time sitting quietly in a room by myself uh, and formulating my ideas. When I'm thinking through something, I need to talk about it 
to somebody. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I love teaching, because I can work through ideas with people um, as I teach. Uh, I learn so much uh, from the whole process of talk, because that's just the way that I think. Tolkien thought with his pen, I believe. I think with my mouth, Tolkien thought with his pen. Um, I believe that in his fiction, in working out his fiction, um, in devising this world, he is himself coming up, you know, exploring answers, coming up with answers to some of these questions that he himself had, you know, in his day job, uh, in his, in his regular life. And again, it's why I think we can't draw boundaries between them. But anyway, so that's one reason, one reason why I think that the casual Tolkien fan should be excited about Tolkien's Beowulf is that by reading it, there's a lot of stuff like this that we can learn. There are a lot of places where we can come to understand Tolkien's world better by looking at the issues that we know he was thinking about with Beowulf, and many of these kinds of connections are going to suggest themselves to us as we read. The second reason, and this is a slightly more complicated uh, reason, is that I think from looking at his discussion of Beowulf, we can come to understand a little bit better what Tolkien thought about stories and storytelling. Um, we can learn a lot about um, how he, th what he thought and what he felt about how stories work and should work. One thing that I would particularly recommend, um, I don't know if, um, I don't know if anyone, uh, you know, who is listening has the singularly bad habit of, uh, you know, reading the main body of a text and ignoring all the appendices and stuff that comes after. I trust that the majority of Tolkien fans have been broken of this habit by Tolkien himself. Um, uh, you know, if there are those of you who still skip all the appendices and everything in the Lord of the Rings, for instance, you, I, I encourage you to break that habit. Um, but, but nevertheless, you know, in this text, we get his translation of Beowulf, which is not that long, but this is a really fat book. Um, you know, we get all of the commentary and everything else. But at the end, I, I, I urge you not to overlook a little gem that we get at the end. And it's something it's actually the thing I was most excited for. Um, and still most excited for, uh, in this volume that is published. The thing which was to me, uh, you know, the greatest, uh, the, the greatest Easter egg is, is not this, but this down here. Um, together with Selick's Spell. Selick's Spell is a short story that, that Tolkien wrote, which, uh, had never been published before, uh, and which I've been wishing to read for a really long time. Um, what Tolkien does in Selick's Spell is he tries to tell the legendary version of Beowulf's story on its own. That is, he believes, and it seems a, a, a pretty, uh, uh, a pretty clear, I mean, it seems to me a relatively non-controversial theory, that the poem Beowulf contains a couple different primary elements. On the one hand, we have the historical matter. There's a lot of stuff in here which refers to uh, well-substantiated history. We know that Hrothgar uh, really existed. You know, so we have Hrothgar and the history of the Danes. We have all of this other, um, you know, historical matter that comes in with, uh, you know, with Ingeld and uh, and 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 all these other things. You know, we've so we've got these references to clear historical characters and events. But then we have the monsters, right? You know, we have, you know, we have dragons and we have Grendel and Grendel's mom, and we have this uh, heroic figure, Beowulf, in the center of it. And, um, and, you know, so this is one of the things that in his article, uh, you know, his, his, his great seminal article, Monsters and the Critics, um, Tolkien is basically chiding the, uh, the Beowulf, um, you know, the sort of the field of Beowulf criticism at the time for trying to ignore all of those sort of heroic, um, uh, you know, legendary elements of the story um, and focusing only on the historical. Um, so um, he... So, so he, that's why, you know, he, he focuses and talks about and talks about the, um, the monsters. Um, in Selk's Spell, he sits down to write the pure legendary version of the Beowulf story. So he tells the story of Beowulf separated entirely from the historical overlay. 
Um, so, you know, nothing about, nothing about Hrothgar and Heorot, nothing about any of those, you know, the, 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 the history of the Yeat peoples and anything like that. Um, it's just the legend of, of, of Beowulf. And I encourage you, uh, to stay tuned later on. Uh, Dr. Dimitra Femi is going to be talking about Selic spell and folklore later on today, uh, in the Beowulf launch party. Um, Dr. Femi is an, is an absolutely wonderful teacher who does a great deal of work, um, not only with Tolkien, but with, uh, with, uh, with, with folklore and fantasy in general. Um, so you'll definitely want to hear what she has to say about Selic spell. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but again, I just want to draw attention to it. Listen, I'll, I'll read, um, I'll read the, the, the opening of Selic spell. Um, and if you, if you can remember Beowulf at all, um, you'll remember, well, you don't have to remember. We have it right here. Um, the famous opening of, of, of Beowulf. Lo, the glory of the kings of the people of the Spear Danes, in days of old we have heard tell, how those princes did deeds of valor, oft shield chafing, robbed the hosts of foemen, many peoples, of the seats where they drank their mead, laid fear upon them, he who first was found forlorn, comfort, for that he lived to know, mighty, un, mighty grew under heaven, throve in honor, until all that dwelt nigh about, over the sea where the whale rides, must hearken to him and yield him tribute, a good king was he. Notice how in that first paragraph from Tolkien's translation here, we get both of those two elements very prominently, right? We have the Spear Danes and Shield Chafing, the, 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 the legendary king and founder of the line that Hrothgar of Heorot is eventually, you know, is, 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 is still ruling. So we have the history of the Spear Danes here, but at the same time, we have this fairy tale story. Um, the idea that Shield Chafing was first found forlorn. Um, he was a foundling child who grew to become king. Um, so we have this, this legendary element and this historical element combined together. Here is, uh, uh, here is the opening of Selic's spell. Once upon a time, there was a king in the north of the world who had an only daughter, and in his house there was a young lad who was not like the others. One day some huntsmen had come upon a great bear in the mountains. They tracked him to his lair and killed him, and in his den they found a man-child. They marveled much, for it was a fine child, about three years old, and in good health, but it could speak no words. It seemed to the huntsmen that it must have been fostered by the bears, for it growled like a cub. They took the child, and as they could not discover whence he came or to whom he belonged, they brought him to the king. The king ordered him to be taken into his house and reared and taught the ways of men. He got little good of the foundling, for the child grew to a surly, lumpish boy, and was slow to learn the speech of the land. He would not work, nor learn the tools, nor, nor learn the use of tools or weapons. He had great liking for honey, and often sought it in the woods, or plundered the hives of the farmers. And as he had no name of his own, people called him Bee-Wolf, and that was his name ever after. He was held in small account, and in the hall he was left in a corner and had no place upon the benches. He sat often on the floor and said little to any man. Um, so Beowulf, of course, is Beowulf, and that's a literal translation of uh, Beowulf's name. Uh, Beowulf, which seems to be, as Tolkien uh, believed it was, a kenning for bear. Um, you know, the bear is the bee, is the wolf of the bees, uh, in because it likes honey so much. Um, so, uh, so this, this concept of Beowulf's story, this idea of the foundling discovered in the cave of the bears, um, who is going to grow up and eventually marry the king's daughter and become king himself. As you see, it's set from the once upon a, from the once upon a time onwards, um, as a fairy tale, as a, as a traditional legend. Again, this is Tolkien's imaginative attempt to kind of get back to the legendary roots, um, not attached to, you know, we have once upon a time, there was a king in the north of the world, right? We're talking about Denmark. We're not talking about the Yeats. We're not talking about any of these things. We're just talking about there was a king and he had a daughter and there was this foundling boy who was who was raised until he was three by bears. And then we're going to, we will hear about, uh, as he grew his miraculous strength, um, and how terrifying he was and how he tended to grab, uh, his enemies in battle and crush them to death, uh, with the strength of a bear. Um, this is the story of Beowulf 
stripped of all historical stuff. Again, this is this is Tolkien's reconstruction. Looking at Selleck's spell, and especially comparing Selleck's spell to Beowulf, looking at how Tolkien has taken these elements, um, most of the things that he says here, not all of them in every detail, but most of the elements that he has of this story are things that you can see in Beowulf, there are stray references here and there to Beowulf's awkward childhood, his, you know, the, the implications of his name, all of these other things. And Tolkien has taken those things together to write a sort of theoretical source story for Beowulf. That process is really fascinating, looking at the ways in which Tolkien thinks about stories, how stories grow, how stories fit together, um, what, what we can learn about Tolkien's concept of, you know, thinking back to on fairy stories and his, his discussions there, you know, the great tree of tales, the way in which he described the sort of organic connection, uh, among different stories. Um, I think there's a great deal that people can learn here about the way that Tolkien connected to stories themselves, um, in looking at his, uh, his thoughts about and explorations of uh, these these tales in this book. The third reason that I think we have to be excited um, is, well, and this is my, that my third reason is really prompted by the fact that I'm a medievalist myself, that it will help us understand Beowulf better, that it can help the casual fan appreciate Beowulf better. If you are the kind of casual fan that I described at the beginning, somebody who loves Tolkien, but has never really been that excited about Beowulf, maybe you don't admit that to other Tolkien fans, but um, but maybe you're not, in fact, very enthusiastic about Beowulf. Now is an excellent opportunity for you to begin to to hear in Tolkien's own words um, why he was so enthusiastic about this poem. What did he love about this so much? What did he get from this? Um, not just so that we can get new get new insights into Tolkien's own work, but so that we can. Uh, come to appreciate more this great work of literature, Beowulf, that Tolkien admired so much, that I admire a great deal, um, that I think is really worth studying and learning on its own. Um, so, again, if you've never really gotten the whole Beowulf thing, one third reason to be excited about it is this, I hope, would help uh, you to be able to get the whole Beowulf thing. Um, okay, so those are the three reasons that I wanted to give. Um, I would be very... Um, uh, I, I, I would be very happy to, uh, uh, to answer questions. I've got a few questions that come in. Please do, um, ask me another questions that you might have here. Um, let's see. Um, okay. Nicholas asks, uh, on Tolkien's translation, he says he's interested in the meter of Tolkien's prose Beowulf. Uh, Christopher emphasizes in the preface that Tolkien worked to maintain a specific meter in the prose. What meter is it precisely? Um, I haven't, I haven't, I, I haven't read enough of it or read it closely enough. I've only just gotten the book recently myself in order to be able to speak on that really authoritatively, Nicholas. Um, what I would say in general terms there, is Tolkien had one of the most sensitive ears I know of any writer I've I've ever read. Um, Tolkien's ear for rhythm and sound of language is second to no one that I've ever read or met. And um, therefore, one thing that is disappointing to a lot of people is that, um, and I, I know many scholars in particular were disappointed that in this volume, what we get is the prose translation, not a verse translation. Tolkien did do a verse translation of Beowulf, and we're not getting that here. And that was a disappointment. I'm a little disappointed that we're not getting the verse Beowulf too. Um, Tolkien was very good at Anglo-Saxon alliterative verse, at the Anglo-Saxon alliterative verse meter. I would have loved to see all of the text that we have of the of the verse Beowulf Tolkien's verse Beowulf translation. However, um, I think it's important not to say, "Oh, this is just prose," right? So it doesn't have the sort of it do doesn't have any of the poetic meter um, of the poetic original. How I how I take that Nicholas just based on the work I've been able to do with it already. How I take this is simply that Tolkien is 
not just re- rendering the stuff, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxon verse into kind of pedestrian modern earth, modern English prose. The, he is deliberately trying to imitate in his prose um, something of the cadence um, of the original. And I think that you can see this um, even if you just, like for instance, I'm just randomly opening to a part in Tolkien's translation. Look at the structure, grammatically, syntactically, of these sentences. I just randomly opened to page 48, line 1004. The hall was filled with clamor. These words did did Wealthiao utter, before all that host she spake. Have and use well to thy good this precious thing, Beowulf, young and dear, and for thine own sake take this mantle, a thing treasured among this people, and prosper well. Show forth thyself in valor, and to these my sons be thou gracious in thy counsels. For that my heart will remember to reward thee. Thou hast achieved that far and near all the ages long shall men esteem thee as wide as the sea encircleth the windy halls of the the windy walls of the land be thou blessed o prince while thy life endures notice the shape of his sentences here um this this is not long winding uh uh convoluted sentences the sentences tend to be short or cut into um into portions which have a, a, about the rhythmic um length of the Anglo-Saxon line, um, he there there is a kind of incantatory um, uh, uh, element in the syntax of his prose here, where he is clearly trying to recall. I mean, I say clearly seems relatively clear to me um, that he's trying to recall the rhythm and the pace of the Anglo-Saxon verse. We're not going to see. Um, again, I haven't even gotten to read the entire thing through yet, as I just got my copy. But um, but I'm I, I would already predict we're not going to see um, really long and complicated uh, sentence structures in this. Um, we are going to get this kind of rhythm because I think he's trying to maintain the 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 the, the rhythm of the sound here. Um, so that's my understanding of um, of what Christopher Tolkien is talking about there. Um, yeah, uh, 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 Nicholas uh, Stanton Roark also says, um, Christopher mentions in the preface that Tolkien chose a prose translation because a literative verse was insufficiently literal. Um, what is the most literal alliterative translation of Beowulf available? Oh, that's tricky. Um, um, the uh, the alliterative. My favorite, let me say it that way, um, um, my, uh, my favorite alliterative verse translation of Beowulf available, um, is by Dick Ringler, R-I-N-G-L-E-R. Um, it's a, a, a translation, uh, no, it's not Seamus Haney, by the way. Um, Seamus Haney's Beowulf is lovely, um, but his scholarship is not good, um, so I, I'm I'm not a big fan of the Seamus of the the Seamus Haney, um, uh, Beowulf. Um, but the Ringler Beowulf I like. Um, it is in verse, um, and I think does a pretty good job. Um, but uh, but yeah, what whenever you take something and you try to make it. Poetry is sort of famously like that thing which cannot be translated. Um, when you are a translator, you have, you know, there, there are many decisions you have to make. One fundamental decision in doing a translation of something like Beowulf is, what are you going to try to do? Are you going to try to be as true as possible to what the poem actually says? Are you going to try to give us what the poem, what the, what the, the content of the poem gives us? Or are you going to try to give us something of the form and experience of the poem? In which case, you're going to have to depart very significantly, uh, from the actual content, you know, the actual word by word content of the poem itself. Tolkien chose the former, right? He chose this, the, to do this prose translation because he was trying to get at, to bring into modern English what the poem Beowulf is doing. By doing that, we lose the entire experience almost the entire experience of listening to the actual poem. We, we lose the poetry of it, right? And we get a prose translation. But what we are getting is the substance of it. Um, though I think, again, Nick, I was coming back to your first question. I think that that's why he did his translation the way that he does. Um, 
that is paying attention to the syntax and rhythm as carefully as he clearly is, um, because he's trying the best he can, even though it's prose, to retain some element of the sound and rhythm of the Anglo-Saxon verse, even though he's not attempting to do the alliterative verse. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay. Um, Uh, let's see. Rick asks, Rick Delp asks, um, is this volume a standalone? Like, can you, is, 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 is this a book you can just sort of get and read on its own? Um, Christopher Tolkien implies that his father expected everyone to have clabber on hand. Uh, is this a deep, is this for a deeper understanding as opposed to an initial, uh, um, you know, wouldn't so expel be a good place to start instead? Um, no, I, I mean, I do think, it depends on what you want. I mean, uh, if you want most fully to, you know, appreciate all of the points that he's making about, you know, Anglo-Saxon language and, um, you know, if you, if you want particular, he's going to be alluding to, you know, especially in the commentary and everything, um, the Anglo-Saxon phrase that he has been translating as in the passage I read you on the fiend of hell. Um, so obviously, on the one level, you know, you can get the most out of it if you have a copy of the Anglo-Saxon text in hand and you can be comparing and everything. But I don't think that that's necessary. I do think that this is something that you can read on its own. Um, if you're interested in pursuing further um, about Beowulf scholarship and Beowulf studies, awesome. Great. But I don't think it's absolutely necessary. Um, I think that there's plenty that you can get uh, from just this volume. Um uh, Ryan's asking, thinking about the fall of Arthur, any connections between the two to keep in mind? Um, the main thing that I would say about that is the thing that the two of them have in common is in some sense the sort of linguistic ethos of the thing. The fall of Arthur, well, I want to get on a big sidetrack on the fall of Arthur, but the, 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 the sort of concept of the fall of Arthur is that he wanted to do an Anglo we don't have any Anglo-Saxon versions of of the Arthur story. We have Middle English stuff, but it's been influenced by French uh, very heavily, by French stuff especially, um, and to some extent by Celtic, um, just as more famously within the Silmarillion tradition. Um, we talk about as you know, just in my Book of Lost Tales class, for the Mythgard Academy, which just started this past week, I was talking about, and I will be more this coming Tuesday. Here, okay, here, here I am giving a plug. Tuesday evening, 9.30 p.m., uh, Book of Lost Tales class with the Mythgard Academy. Anyway, um, we're going to be looking at the mythology for England, this concept that many people are familiar with, that Tolkien set out when he started working on the Silmarillion material to write a mythology for England. Tolkien's whole point was that there was nothing that is natively no native English mythology. Um, that is, there's, there's Celtic stuff, there's French stuff, there's, 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 but there's Norse stuff, but there's no English stuff. And, uh, um, he wanted to, he wanted to make that English fairy stories, um, actually native English fairy stories. That was sort of his fictional project, um, uh, in one sense of where that stuff started. Um, that stuff, meaning like so the Silmarillion and like Middle Earth and everything. But anyhow, um, the fall of Arthur, to some extent, is kind of in a similar position. King Arthur is perhaps the greatest native English mythological figure, and yet we have no English version of him. We just uh, we've got French stuff and we've got Celtic stuff, um, but there's uh, there's nothing uh, you know from the whole Anglo-Saxon period of you know of Arthur stuff that's not you know, either Celtic or French. Um, so he was doing, so the, the, the sort of the, the, the artistic project of the fall of Arthur was in a sense, let's do this story, but let's do it in alliterative verse. You know, let's, let's, let's give it this, you know, you know, sort of invest it with the spirit of traditional English, Anglo-Saxon, um, uh, you know, linguistic and, uh, uh, and, and sort of literary values, um, and let's look at what, what uh, uh, in this sense, a truly English version of the Arthur story would be. Um, so Ryan, in some sense, we can see a kind of, we, we can certainly see, uh, we can certainly see connections there. Um, what, 
what we're not going to get here, as I just said, we're not going to get his alliterative verse. He did do an alliterative, an alliterative verse translation. We're not going to get that. Um, so we can't compare that directly with his alliterative verse in the fall of Arthur, which I think is excellent, by the way. Um, um, but, uh, but certainly both of them show his engagement with the, the literature and the language of this period. Um, and we can see ways in which those he's already he's kind of embodying those in his own mind. Again, you see that what I'm talking about about like no boundaries between his scholarship and his fiction, right? When he's thinking about King Arthur and Anglo-Saxons, it's 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 not enough for him. You know, he, his impulse is not to write an article on it. His impulse is to write the Fall of Arthur, right? That's that's what he did. Um, okay. Um, Noam asks, any thoughts for someone who never read Beowulf, and this might be his first time? I guess my the main thing I would say for someone who's never read Beowulf before is not to get too bogged down in the commentaries and stuff. Um, I mean, of course, as I was just saying, I urge people to read the commentaries. But that's especially useful for people who are at least familiar with the Beowulf story. Um, for people who aren't familiar with Beowulf at all, for whom if you've never read Beowulf at all before, start with the text. Just focus on the text. And I would encourage you, the text is short, I'd encourage you to, before you go and read the commentary, read the text a couple times. Um, I think that it will help the commentaries to be, to sort of be, uh, they might feel a little bit more laborious, I think, if, um, if you're not at all familiar with Beowulf and just coming to this. Um, and I wouldn't want you to feel sort of bogged down uh, in something. So that's one recommendation that I would give. Um, but I think if you haven't read Beowulf before, now is the perfect time to do it. Um, read Tolkien's Beowulf, uh, and I think that you will find it uh, enriching in many different ways. Well, thanks very much, everybody, for joining me today. This has been a sort of a fun session. I hope to... Um, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, sorry. One last quick question. Uh, Sean uh, Gunner asks you. You. Uh, I've talked about this translation as being important for understanding Tolkien. How important is this translation for understanding Beowulf? Will new Will new academic debates and studies be spawned by this? Well, I. First of all, Sean, I'm going to defer on that question uh, to you know. Uh, Later on today, I believe you guys are going to be uh, talking with uh, with Michael Drought. Um, he's the much better person than I am to answer that question. Um, as he, I am not myself an Anglo. I'm a medievalist, but I'm not an Anglo-Saxonist. I'm primarily a Middle English guy. Um, so uh, others will ha others will have a much better uh, others like Michael Drought will have a much better uh, grasp on exactly where the academic debates in Anglo-Saxon studies stand and where this will fit in with those. Um, my my. Um, my sense, though, is that I yes, I do think that it, it is will is and will be helpful uh, for understanding Beowulf, and I think that many people will be very interested uh, to read this. Um, however, I um, my question, my question is sort of how seriously people are going to take it. I'll be interested to see that. I'll be interested to see um, how. And and again, I'm thinking of this only because. There's a big difference between Tolkien, the great Oxford scholar in the 50s, publishing this work of fantasy fiction and everybody saying, why is the Don publishing, you know, fantasy? Um, now, 60 years removed from that, now Tolkien is, you know, uh, practically synonymous with fantasy fiction. Um, the fact that he was a scholar has not been forgotten. Certainly, uh, you know, his the, the Monsters and the Critics is not forgotten um, by Anglo-Saxon scholars. But it's not like Tolkien is is you know sixty years later is 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 still the you know the number one place that all modern Anglo-Saxon scholars go to uh, you know uh, in, for their Beowulf studies. Instead, we have now a long-standing tradition, a many decades long. Um, uh, tradition of dismissing fantasy literature in general and Tolkien in particular, um, uh, you know, that with the great hostility that there has been hostility towards discomfort with, and I personally think fear of um, uh, the Lord of the Rings and fantasy literature by professional academics. Um, 
therefore, since the majority of professional literary scholars are conditioned to sneer at Tolkien now, um, my, my fear is that people aren't going to really take this seriously. Um, and so, so I don't know, but again, ask Michael Drought that question. Uh, he'll be able to tell you a little bit, uh, 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 more. I, I, I think it might, um, my fear is that it will fall sort of outside that, but do I believe that this has, you know, insights to offer on Beowulf? Yes. And certainly I have to admit that one of my, uh, chief interests in reading it is, uh, you know, as somebody who's not a professional Beowulf scholar, but someone who is uh, very interested in Beowulf and Anglo-Saxon literature. Uh, and I know that, you know, this book has a lot to teach me about Beowulf and Anglo-Saxon literature. So certainly that's one of the reasons I'm excited about it there too. Um, but we'll see, Sean. We'll, we'll see how the professionals respond. I will be, I will be uh, delighted, but a little bit surprised uh, if it's taken very seriously. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, thanks again for joining, uh, for joining me, everybody. I, uh, I look forward to, you've got a, a great day ahead, a bunch of, uh, of really wonderful, uh, scholars and speakers coming on to talk about this today. Uh, so I hope that you will stay tuned to the Middle Earth Network and the Tolkien Society, uh, for more fun Tolkien and Beowulf events throughout the day. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Bye.